From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As summer tourism gets underway, what will that actually look like? We're getting questions through Colorado Wonders. We plan to drive from Florida to Colorado in about a week. Is there any issue driving into Colorado with Florida plates on our vehicle? What kind of welcome mat is the state putting out for tourists in an industry that's key to the local economy? Plus, an update from the state capitol where lawmakers are making tough choices about the budget. Then, incarcerated but not without aspirations. It's hard to explain to another person the idea that I've learned to speak French in the same cell where two separate murders have taken place. A teacher reading the words of one of her students who's behind bars. How writing can be transformational. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Memorial Day weekend typically marks the unofficial start of the summer travel season, but the pandemic has upended where people can go and what they can do. We've received several questions through Colorado Wonders from people who own summer homes here. George King is driving to Colorado from Florida, where restaurants and beaches have been open for a couple of weeks. We built our home in Keystone, which was completed in 1999. Uh, We lived there five months during the summer. We planned to drive from Florida to Colorado in about a week. Is there any issue driving into Colorado with Florida plates on our vehicle? Let's get an answer to that and other vacation questions from Kathy Ritter, head of the Colorado Tourism Office. Hi, Kathy. Hello. It's good to be here. So what's your response to George and other part-time Colorado residents from out of state? Can they come here for the summer like normal? One of the most important things for travelers to understand this summer is that it's going to be vitally important to keep checking for local guidance. Um, conditions are changing across our nation and across our state, and so it's just going to be very important for travelers to stay on top of this as they're moving. And websites are being constantly updated. That's an excellent source of information here in Colorado. We also, <clears throat> excuse me, we also have a toll-free number, 800-1800. Colorado, where someone can speak to live counselors about travel, current travel conditions and get current travel information. Now, just two weeks ago, the state was discouraging visits, but recently changed its position. Now the state is encouraging recreational tourism. What led to that decision? Well, actually, our position hasn't changed all that much in recent weeks. Um, We had been certainly in the height of concerns about the global pandemic. We had been advising travelers that now is not the best time to visit Colorado. But as our state has continued on a steady and very thoughtful path to reopening, we have um, gradually changed our guidance for travelers um, because there are new evidence, uh, there's new evidence every day that um, more and more parts of our state are opening up for travelers and for local residents as well. So, for instance, just today, um, Rocky Mountain National Park is beginning its phased reopening. The city of Aspen is reopening to travelers. Um, Other destinations like Vail have been open for some time. Our state park campgrounds have reopened and private campgrounds are now open as well. So it's a rapidly changing situation. And as it changes, um, our messaging is just being uh, built out for travelers so that they have more awareness about the things that there are to do in Colorado. 
So changing the messaging and just to get clarity, is the State Tourism Office encouraging people to come to Colorado at this point? At this point, we don't have any active promotion. We are really taking the stance of being um, a trusted source of information for travelers. So we share information on Colorado.com, on the Visit Colorado Facebook page, um, you know, in other in other communications channels to help travelers um, understand the landscape. And it is a confusing landscape for travelers today. Um, there are some destinations that are, you know, throwing their arms open <laughs> to welcome visitors. Um, Estes Park is reopening next week with vacation rentals uh, reopening and um, several attractions reopening. But there are still some communities that are taking a cautious approach based on their local health conditions. And in the same vein of providing more information, the Colorado Tourism Office has a new ad that outlines five-step process for responsible tourism. So let's listen to that. When visiting us in Colorado, there's a few things you should know. Five steps will help protect us all, no matter where you go. Space! How about a ski between you and me? Mask! Keep one in your pocket in case you need to rock it. Clean! Wash your hands and be careful what you touch. Stay! Feeling sick? Protect others. Stay home. Thanks a bunch. No! Follow the guidelines wherever you go. Each place you visit has rules of their own. Well, these five steps are just a start to help us all do our part. Thanks for listening to our tips. We hope you all enjoy your trips. Kathy, how will you make sure that travelers see this information? Will you promote it outside of the state? Um, actually, this is not an ad. It's a video. And we are sharing it through our network of um, of partners. So we'll be distributing this to all destinations. This ad, techni- I mean, not an ad, this ad, this video is technically not quite complete. It'll be in finished form early next week. And then we will be sharing it with destinations across Colorado. We'll be sharing it with our Care for Colorado Coalition members to share with their members and on their communications channels. Um, but we're also considering putting... Um, sharing this messaging with paid social. When the time comes that we're ready to begin promoting Colorado, we want to make certain that this message is in front of travelers because as people do come to visit our state, we want to make certain that they are up to speed on the ways to protect um to protect the people who live here. Uh, we, we've basically, we're basically using this as a new interpretation of our definition of responsible tourism. In the past, we've really focused on educating our travelers about protecting our destinations. And now we're saying to these travelers, please protect our destinations, but please also make sure you're taking steps to protect the people who call those destinations home. And from what we can understand, the governor is still advising Colorado residents to travel no more than 10 miles from home and to avoid crowded locations where social distancing may be difficult. How does that rule apply to tourists driving in from out of state? You know, as more of our state reopens, um, we're asking not only residents, but visitors, too, to respect um, the wishes, you know, the public health and the capacity of our local destinations, whether that's in-state residents returning to their favorite getaway or out-of-state travelers discovering the state for the first time. Um, it's just very important for everyone to understand that the, the situation varies across our state. Various counties have different guidelines and different views of um, how they are ready or willing to accept visitors at this point. And while we're using um, statewide um, data, 
public health data to inform statewide guidance, there's, um, you know, there are very different interpretations of this guidance across the state. So again, it's just very important for people to be aware of those local guidelines and to make certain that they are informed travelers. So let's move to the business aspect of this because it is a big economic driver. Business owners in the San Juan Basin depend on the million and a half tourists who normally visit each year. We spoke with Leanne Jolin, Director of Public Health, about the balancing act between people's lives and livelihoods. We're all in a difficult and frustrating position together, and we know that we will not be able to recover economically without also having good, solid public health to slow spread of infection. Um, You know, if we continue to see spikes in disease and outbreaks, that's going to be um, every bit as harmful to our communities and our financial health as uh, the social distancing that we have all suffered through over the last few months. For additional perspective, let's bring in Diane Wildfang, the owner of Rochester Hotel in Durango. Hi, Diane. Hello. It's nice to talk to you. I understand. Thank you. I'm glad to have you here. I understand that you expect to lose about half a million dollars during the shutdown. You said reopening will be similar to starting a new business. How is that? We have to, we have a very small family run. Uh, well, we have several employees. We, we it is family run. And it's an intimate uh, setting. It's uh, quite quite uh, impossible to um, separate people, for instance, in the lobby where we serve breakfast. And uh, our business is kind of based on personal service. So we, uh, we have a very close connection with uh, our employees and with our guests from all over the world. And um, so we have to rethink our business model and do a business plan. We can't just open with the big unknown out there, the elephant in the room, so to speak. And so we, um, it's going to be costly. We'll we'll lose this summer for sure. And uh, I think when we first, when we first thought it over, we thought it would be about four hundred thousand, but now um, it's, we know it's going to be at least five hundred thousand. People are calling in uh, as as it gets close to their time and canceling, and we send them a refund. And we've already canceled through June. We are in the process of canceling everybody through June. We had a really full summer ahead, and it was very heartbreaking, just heartbreaking. And with so much to consider, but, have you figured out when you might reopen? Do you have a plan? No. We're, we're going with the science and the virus and seeing what, uh, when it can be safe. Um, most of my employees have families at home, and they're staying home. They're on unemployment, and... Um, I don't want them to get infected and infect their families. It's the most important thing to me. So I have, it's on hold. (laughs) Kathy, tourism is supposed to be about fun. Do you find that the pandemic has changed how people want to spend their time off? 
it is tourism is supposed to be about fun. It is supposed to be about getting away from the things that that stress you. And Colorado, thank goodness, does offer all kinds of ways to make that happen. We're so fortunate in that so much of what we offer in our state is naturally social distancing. We have wide open spaces, world-class outdoor recreation, stunning natural resources. Um, These are the kinds of things that are really appealing to people who've been isolated at home these past few months and are really yearning to feel free again. And so we uh, hope we can make that happen for people this summer. Kathy Ritter is the director of the Colorado State Tourism Office. Diane Wildfang owns the Rochester Hotel in Durango. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Stuart Vanderworld, president of Colorado Public Radio. To every single member and supporter of CPR, I want to personally let you know we are so grateful for you and your steadfast support. Each day, all Coloradans are sharing in a single experience, and more and more people are turning to Colorado Public Radio. And because of your generosity, CPR is here for Colorado. Your support inspires and fuels our service every day. On behalf of everyone at CPR, be well and thank you for your support. Colorado lawmakers returned to work Tuesday in a changed world. The Capitol entrances were manned by health workers with thermometers. In the House, lawmakers' desks were separated by big transparent plastic shields on the House floor. In the other chambers, some senators sat along with the wall to allow for social distancing. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland was there to see the start of this historic session. State lawmakers have been off for a little more than two months because of the pandemic. What do they aim to get done now that they're back? Passing a state budget is the top priority. The budget is known as the long bill because it is so long and it'll be introduced in the House later this week. Colorado has a more than $3 billion budget shortfall because of the new coronavirus. Democrats hold a majority in both the House and the Senate, and they plan to introduce some new legislation related to COVID-19. They want to expand unemployment insurance benefits, require companies to let workers accrue a minimum of 48 hours of sick leave, and add whistleblower protections if employees complain of unsafe work conditions. And we'll probably see some other new legislation as well. So those are the Democrats' proposals. What bills are Republicans posing to respond to the pandemic? Republicans want to add liability protections for companies and businesses that reopen, follow guidelines, but then could still get sued if someone at that business contracts the virus. Republicans also want to reduce interest and penalties for late property tax payments and cap unemployment insurance premiums. Keep in mind, this late in the legislative session, any bill needs approval from legislative leaders to be introduced. Democrats aren't likely to give the green light to any GOP proposal that doesn't have widespread bipartisan support. So how long will this last? The session could last another two months, but lawmakers in both parties have expressed a strong desire to try to get their work done as quickly as possible so they don't have to be in the Capitol for that long. We're anticipating right now it'll be about a three-week session. What happens to all the stuff the lawmakers were working on before they went on break? The session was paused, so everything picks right back up where it left off. Bills are still in committees and need to be decided on. Lawmakers are defeating a lot of the proposals because, as the Democratic speaker said, there either isn't time to work on them or there's no funding for it. 
when a lawmaker kills their own bill, it's called postponing it indefinitely. And that was a phrase we heard quite a bit in committee hearings. I will be requesting that we postpone indefinitely. I move that we postpone indefinitely. And it is my understanding this bill will probably not move forward. The motion is to um, postpone House Bill 201034. The state capitol is normally a crowded, bustling building. What was it like to be there with the current restrictions? Overall, the building was quiet. I saw about five lobbyists. I didn't see anyone from the public watching the proceedings. There may have been a few people, but not crowded at all. I was on the floor of the House at the press table. The media was allowed to have one person sit there, and then we'll rotate among different news outlets. The house was much more subdued. Plexiglass was installed between the seats, and nine lawmakers volunteered to sit in the upper public viewing gallery to create more space. In the house, all of the Democrats wore masks, and at least half of the Republicans did not. It's worth noting that neither the House or the Senate has air conditioning. And so in the House, these huge windows were open and fans were blaring. It was hard to hear because most people are talking with masks and there's plexiglass. So that was one difference I noticed. So if there aren't as many lobbyists or people from the public coming to the Capitol, that's got to really cut down on public input on legislation, I think. It could. People will be allowed to participate remotely. They can write letters in support or opposition of bills. The public can still come to testify in person. There will just have to be more space in the committee hearing room, so not as many people could be there. Several different groups held small protests outside and around the Capitol. Education workers held a car rally to oppose budget cuts. A different group opposed to loosening bans on evictions was there. So I think as we see more bills in committee and the budget negotiations get going, we could have a lot more people inside the building as well. Thanks, Benta. My pleasure. Thanks. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. The pandemic has been tough on dairy farmers. Schools, restaurants, and coffee shops stopped buying milk during isolation. Colorado has more than 100 dairy farmers. Reporter Sonia Doctorian talked with several of them about how they're coping. Casey DeHaan and his father, Larry DeHaan, own Great Western Dairy in Weld County, which is Colorado's top milk-producing area. The cows are well taken care of. They're happy cows. They produce a staggering 13 million gallons every year. The Dahans milk their Jersey Cross cows twice a day, until a couple weeks ago when the tanker truck didn't arrive to pick up the milk. All the tanks were full, and you know there was just a huge backlog of trucks, and we had to stop milking for a while, and we were almost to the point where we had to start dumping milk. We came real close, yeah. The pandemic struck during spring flush, when cows are most productive. COVID-19 hit just as milk production was coming to its greatest peak, and just when then demand dropped out from underneath us. Dennis Rodenbaugh is an executive of Dairy Farmers of America. But let's back up. Before the market for milk sunk, before the shutdown, there was a brief window when demand was through the roof. Consumers dashed to the retail stores. They picked up as much milk as they could possibly carry. We ramped up and delivered 25% more milk than we typically do to keep up with that supply. But just like that, the shutdown happened, and cold storage areas were full up with cheese and milk, with no restaurants or schools to sell it to. Processors made the calls that dairy industry leaders dread. They simply had to call us up one night, and it was like a light switch, and say, 
we don't need any more milk, and can you have the trucks that are in the parking lot turn around? In other parts of the U.S., farmers had to throw away the milk their cows had produced. The old saying that you don't cry over spilled milk, it's wrong. You do. It's hard work. Blood, sweat, tears, love, and passion went into making that milk. And to watch it go down the drain, and I've had to do it myself, it's heartbreaking. Rodenbaugh expects milk dumping in Wisconsin and the Northeast to end soon, as dairy farmers cut back their production and restaurants open up more. In Colorado, the supply chain is much tighter. Dairy farmers haven't had to dump milk. And for the DeHaan family, the saving grace will be some futures contracts backed by the federal government that the business signed last December. It's very possible a lot of dairy farmers don't survive this, but I took advantage of being able to lock in a lot of my uh, prices for the next year. It's turning out to be really a, a savior for, you know, surviving this year. Another way a few dairies are thriving right now is that demand for home delivery is way up. Luke Padula is out on his Fort Collins milk route for morning fresh dairy. Yeah, one of the reasons I like being a milkman right now is uh, just being able to keep a lot of people out of the grocery store. He sprints from the truck to each house carrying ice-cold glass bottles and loads them into a cooler on the porch. These days he has dozens of new houses on his route. Morning Fresh has a wait list right now, and so does Longmont Dairy. Katie Herman says they have a thousand new delivery customers up and down the front range. And it really happened overnight. It was the middle of March. That's when the online signups just exploded. Since the stay-at-home orders were announced, Longmont Dairy has purchased more cows and trucks, are hiring more drivers and delivering around the clock. They used to only deliver at night. Less traffic, more efficient. There are more challenges with doing daytime delivery, but we're just doing anything we can to get the products out there right now. A customer in Thornton, Amy Barsonis, says it was really important to her to minimize trips to the grocery store. Two of her children have asthma. I decided just stay home. So that's what we're trying to do is create this oasis here. Barsonis orders strawberry, chocolate, and 2% for her children and grandson, all under age 9. She signed up just before the pandemic hit, in the winter, a decision that now feels providential. When something like this happens, you don't realize how much is on a mother's shoulders. I was like, oh, thank God I had that. And I don't. these kids go through so much milk. It's insane. All this demand is one reason that Casey DeHaan believes his business will thrive long after the pandemic. I'm confident, you know, that the best days are ahead of us. And if you can get through, you know, a challenge, you know, you can see the other side of it and it should be good. Right? While DeHaan talks, the milking continues behind him, just as it has for his family for more than a century. For CPR News, I'm Sonia Doctorian in Alt, Colorado. Life in prison can be bleak, and the lighter moments stand out in stark contrast. It's hard to explain to another person the idea that I've learned to speak French in the same cell where two separate murders have taken place. It's a cold and hostile environment, but I've also experienced some profound joys and experiences here. The dimmest lights shine brightest in the darkest places. And I've learned to appreciate those dim lights as inspiration. The fact that I'm almost certainly going to die here is something that's hard to escape, even for a second. That's Kathy Wolbert reading an essay one of her incarcerated students wrote. Kathy is a writing instructor from Adams State University's Prison College Program. The university in Alamosa offers degrees and courses through the mail. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks. 
Also with us is Carol Guerrero-Murphy, also a writing instructor in the Prisons Correspondence Program. Hi, Carol. Hi, how are you today? Doing well, thank you. You teach incarcerated students across the country, according to the Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization that covers the U.S. criminal justice system. As of May 6th, at least 20,000 people in prisons nationwide tested positive for COVID-19. There were hundreds of cases at Colorado's Sterling Correctional Facility. I understand references to the coronavirus began cropping up in the correspondence a couple of months ago. What have your students been communicating? Carol, you recently had an inmate tell you about the testing in his prison. Yes, just in his pod, there were 120 people and they were on lockdown. And that meant they couldn't go to the commissary for a snack or go to their jobs or anything. So all 120 were tested, 70 were positive, and then they were moved out and put into quarantine. No, it's well over half the people in his pod. Yes. And Kathy, I understand that you assigned a novel, Earth Abides, even before the outbreak. Earth Abides is a novel written in 1949, post-World War II and the dropping of the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The author, George Stewart, wanted to write about a post-apocalyptic world, and he chose a pandemic as the setting. So uh, I have had a lot of students write about the extreme irony that the novel that we're reading for English 101, the composition class, is about a pandemic, and they are living through a pandemic. And Kathy, I'd like to have you read an excerpt from an essay one of your students wrote on overcrowding in prisons at a time like this, and whether it's a violation of the Constitution's Eighth Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. When I teach argument, I'm I teach the Rogerian form of argument named after Carl Rogers. And what's different about it is that you have to make a compromise with the counter-argument. You can't just win or lose. You have to come to a resolution in a Rogerian argument. So with that in mind, he acknowledges the counter-argument by saying, quote, there are those who are not particularly empathetic to prisoners because of society's belief that they are to expect risks like this, COVID-19, when they come to prison. A fellow inmate of mine said matter-of-factly, we face death every day from all the guys around us. Those guys who have life sentences are as good as dead already. Dying of a virus may be a quicker way to end this misery. Wow. Carol, what are your students sharing in their writing? Uh, I had one student who I thought was pretty humorous. He, he went on speaking about the anxiety of the fear and isolation and uh, facing the pandemic. And he said, so things are about like they always are. Hmm. <laughs> wow. I don't have that in front of me anymore. One thing about our program is that they send us packages with their writing, and then we write letters back and write all over their writing and mail it away back to them. Wow. So this is mostly done in physical copy. All print-based. That's what makes us different from other distance learning programs out there. None of this is online, if you think about it. It all has to be old-fashioned, print-based correspondence courses. So Carol writes a study guide. I write a study guide. It gets physically mailed to the prisoner in the the prison, and they work their way through the study guide. 
usually they have to buy textbooks as well. Adams State University is one of the few colleges in the nation that is responding to this particular niche. Most incarcerated folks are not allowed access to the internet at all or really anything. Right. Uh, they're lucky to have a, maybe a typewriter. Now with COVID-19, usually we are required to give our students a, a proctored final exam. But with the lockdowns, every incarcerated student that I have is reporting being on some kind of lockdown. That means that extra staff, such as a proctor, are not being allowed inside the prison. So Carol and I are having to come up with alternate non-proctored assignments to replace those assignments that, that they cannot get. Wow. And these aren't just for personal edification. These are for college credit. And so it's yeah. trying to figure out how to get those... Yeah exams proctored in a way that can count. Now, obviously, these are all huge differences than teaching a student, say, in a traditional classroom. Carol, I want you to talk about some of the differences in the writing of incarcerated students from students who who you've taught in the past who are face-to-face. The students have earned the privilege to take these courses. And so my students, they have a great deal of integrity and dedication, and they never want to violate any of the rules or expectations. They want to be the perfect students. They're taking none of it for granted. And the other is that um, I I have students, a few who are maybe just really learning to write, but I have students who have who have maybe been reading and writing and even publishing through PEN America and places like that for decades. And so I am often humbled by the quality of their writing. They want to put their whole hearts into the work and they want opportunities to be heard outside of prison if possible. And Kathy, how do you think about the way your students write? Like Carol, I have a wide range of students because I teach a wide range of courses, all the way from English 101 to advanced composition. Some of them will say to me that they haven't read a book in a long time, that they hated English when they were in high school or dropped out, you know, but they're mustering their courage to confront that wound and that thing that is undone, that they see that they need to do, they need to accomplish it. And face that fear. And in the beginning classes, I I assign a lot of narratives. I want them to write about themselves, about what they've experienced, about what they think about things. I'll, I'll give them a prompt, a reading, and then I ask them to just reflect on it. So they, I find that the writing starts to flow when they start to tell their stories. They want to come clean on some deep level And they want to be taken seriously. And um, as English professors, that's what we do. We look at their content. We look at their craft. I'm not in a position to judge what they've done. I probably don't even want to know what they've done. But I look at their writing. And I help them tell their story in a cleaner, more efficient, more powerful way. I know that I'm asking you to speak for them, but what have you heard from your students about what they gain from the act of writing? There is that the gift of being taken seriously. That's a big gift. 
they've not been taken seriously. That's an understatement. And I think they have learned to not take themselves seriously, and not in a humorous way, but in a a low self-esteem kind of way. So to correspond with someone they'll probably never meet and to be taken seriously as someone who has a story to tell and a story worth telling and worth working on to tell it even better, I think that is a life changer. And Carol, what do you hear from your students about what they gain from writing and writing class? Uh, It's not just about self-discovery and teaching literary analysis. They are uh, all reading Charles Dickens' Hard Times, which I picked because it is about people who really have struggled in society. And so they are able to see through reading that they're not alone uh, with these kinds of struggles that all of them have faced that have had them wind up where they are. And to be able to engage in that, to imagine, I've ha- I have students who do write about the outside and their memories and their letters to their children. I think it's important to remember that many of these students do have families who care about them on the outside. So they're finding ways to connect, to really connect and to know themselves better. And Kathy, before we wrap up, I'd like you to read one more excerpt from a prison memoir titled Time Minds. The author writes about the nature of time in prison, and he's been incarcerated since he was a teenager and was 54 when he wrote this. Yeah, I remember this student. Uh, With an explosion of emotion, tears welled up in my eyes and I sobbed as I realized that time had stolen the world. It was gone, and all I had left was a Polaroid backdrop of 39 pines and the silent certitude of ticking time. Prison, for someone serving a life sentence, is very like being dead. You become a ghost in your own life, denizen of a kind of purgatory. You become an airplane that will never land, perpetually soaring over fly over country with no connections below and you cannot remember where you are going or where you are from. Time has stolen these most crucial waypoints of your life and you have become eternal. That's some powerful imagery. What do you remember about this? I really want to, I'm hearing this in a, in a new way too with the, lockdown so many people globally are experiencing. And and I just want to add that uh, I learn from my students as well so much about what it is to be human and resilience and forgiveness. But I think also this sense of timelessness, some of us uh, who have been really isolated. I'm not saying we're in that kind of situation. I'm extremely privileged. But that sense of time becoming unhinged. So we learn from our students as well. They have a lot of insights to give us. Carol and Kathy, thank you so much for your time. You are welcome. Oh, you are welcome. And thank you, Avery. So appreciate your doing this. That's Carol Guerrero-Murphy and Kathy Wolbert, both writing instructors from Adams State University's Prison College Program. When we come back, is it possible to have a party in the pandemic? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
CPR's photojournalists have received awards for the work they do every day, giving visual context for vital stories. Hart Van Denberg from CPR News. In some ways, you have the luxury to think about how to cover a story in a thoughtful way. And Kevin Beatty from Denverite. My job is to make art for news, and it's awesome. <laughs> Look for award-winning photojournalism from Colorado Public Radio at denverite.com and cpr.org. As more places reopen, it might be tempting to slip into old social habits, like having or going to a party. May Ortega and Sam Brash put that idea to the test in At a Distance, the CPR podcast about living our best lives in the pandemic. So, Sam, Mm -hmm. I have been thinking... These lockdown measures are lifting, and as that happens, I've been getting a growing urge to throw a party. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get that, but but what kind of party? So here is what I want. I would want to have people playing beer pong in teams, people reuniting and hugging it out, clinking our glasses to everything that we've been through together, people doing keg stands, maybe a pair of strangers making out in the corner. Like, I don't want a total rager. Like, that is what my dream right now. You know you can't throw that party. That would be an epidemiological nightmare. Yeah, I know. Just thinking about it makes me feel a little irresponsible. But this is my dream party. It's not a thing. But Sam, you are a science reporter. I am. Well, I think you should try to figure out with science, for me, how close we can get to that dream party. Like, at this point in this pandemic, what is safe? We need to get used to living life this way, and learning how to get together with others is a big part of that. I mean, yeah, I I think something might be possible. It's worth a shot. Why not? Oh, cool. All right. Oh, my gosh. So I already have so many ideas for what we can do, and I've already thought of a theme, and I'm going to get a short guest list together. Take a second. Take a breath. Take a second. (laughs) I just want you to be ready, because if you want me to do this, I'm going to talk to people. It might not be safe at all. There might not be a party. I just want you to be prepared for that reality. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I just wanted to be clear before you got ahead of yourself. I don't want to do anything that could be responsible for giving a single person the coronavirus. All right. That is totally fair. So you figure out the safest way we can do this, and I'll take care of the rest. All right. Maybe I'll uh, actually see you in person, May. Cool. This is going to be fun. Okay, May, so you're, like, not alone in wanting to see your friends. I'm tired of these Zoom calls. I'm tired of these strange online board games. Mm-hmm. Is seeing other people even allowed at this point? So that obviously depends on, like, where you are. Where we mm-hmm. are in Denver, you can hold gatherings of fewer than 10 people, but you're not supposed to travel more than 10 miles. So bottom line is, like, where we are, I don't think you'll be breaking any laws so long as you cut the invite list. That means it's a VIP occasion, so only my closest (laughs) peeps will make the cut. But okay, I mean, I guess I don't just want to know what's legal as I'm preparing for this party. I want to know what's safe and what's responsible. Right. And to get at that, I called Dr. William Schaffner. I'm an infectious disease physician, and I also am a professor of preventive medicine here at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And May, I started by asking him what would be the worst possible gathering you could throw right now. And he agrees your dream party is a really bad idea. 
it's a combination of distance, time, and enclosure. Meaning you really don't want to throw a big indoor rager because that has all the elements that he's talking about. People would be close together inside for a long time. Mm. And you could make it even worse if you just invite everybody because that could draw some really vulnerable people. A lot of people who've come in who've been casual about social distancing in the past all gathered together very, very closely for a prolonged period of time. No one wearing masks. And to make it even worse, we could make all those people with gray hair. Because if they get infected, of course, they'll get worse disease. And dude, if you throw a party like that, Dr. Schafter says the damage wouldn't be limited to you and your friends. They are likely to encounter others and transmit that virus. And all of a sudden, this could be the genesis of a mini explosion of infections in a community. From one party. One party could do that. Just from one party. Okay, I get it. But that's just like my dream party, I know, Sam. I know. Okay. I mean, I asked you to figure out what I can do, and states are starting to ease their restrictions. So then, how is Dr. Schaffner dealing with that? Is he just begging people to stay indoors no matter what the government says? No, not at all. You know, there's no such thing as safe. It's all about reducing your risk and assessing your own risk tolerance. My wife and I are not ready to go to a restaurant yet. And there are other people already in restaurants in my community in Nashville. Good. They have a risk tolerance that's greater than ours. Right. It seems like you're hinting at something that I've seen in a few publications recently, comparing this stage of the pandemic to the AIDS crisis in the 80s and making the point that really what proved effective in that earlier crisis wasn't telling people to abstain from sex, but how to have safe sex. Is that sort of what you're hinting at now, that now is the time to talk about harm reduction and risk reduction? Yeah, it was safer sex, not safe. Uh, And yes, there are things we can do to reduce the risk of harm. And by doing them cumulatively, we can be really reasonably safe. And to reduce the risk of transmission, Dr. Schaffner says you have to understand how this virus spreads, which appears to really be about droplets. Microscopic particles that are little spheres of fluid, that's the droplet which would surround the virus. And they have the capacity usually to travel within three to six feet. And then gravity actually pulls them to Earth. Oh, is that where we get the six-foot rule from? That's where we get the six-foot rule. But if you're yelling or singing or screaming, those droplets can go a lot farther. And if you sneeze, they could go as far as 30 feet. Oh, God. Okay, so (laughs) basically any gathering where people are loud or singing or spit is just coming out of your mouth for any reason, Mm -hmm. that's especially dangerous. Yeah, and May, just to clarify, like, what type of event tends to have all those ingredients. A party. A party, exactly. So what are you saying here, Sam? A party is just a bad idea? Yeah, man, I'm afraid so. And look, Dr. Schaffner agrees. So you're sympathetic to my friend May, who who wants to throw this party. Um, not yet. (laughs) 
but he suggested you can change your expectations a little bit. Maybe it's not a party. Maybe it's just a quiet, low-key gathering. I would start small. Two couples, three couples, you know, as the current recommendations generally are at the moment, no group larger than 10. Can you live with that? Yes, I can readjust my vision. We'll have to design, in your own words, a low-key gathering (laughs) where there's basically no chance of touching or swallowing someone else's spit, right? Correct. And I asked Dr. Schaffner for some ideas of how to do that. And just like a really big caveat here, these tips should come after advice from local public health officials. I'm not saying this is what you or anyone else should do. I'm saying that if you're going to do it, if you're going to socialize, here's how to minimize the risk. Okay, fair enough. Bring it on. Okay, so first thing, have a pre-interview with the people you want to invite first thing I would ask them is, have you been good about social distancing? And they should ask the same thing of me. So don't invite folks who aren't being so careful themselves. Make that really clear. Right. And that's really important because this disease can spread even if someone has no symptoms. Mm -hmm. But also you should ask if they do have symptoms, a cough, a sniffle, a sore throat, because then they really need to stay home. That ought to be part of the screen. If all of a sudden you develop the sniffles or a fever, you've got to keep yourself at home, and then May will have nine people there. Screen your guests. Okay, got it. And second thing, tell everyone they have to wear a mask. Because the masks inhibit the transmission, the distance out of my mouth that these droplets can fly. The mask, in effect, catches them. So I'm wearing a mask to protect you. And you're wearing a mask to protect me. We're all in this together. Oh, that's fine. I got the most stylish masks at this point. I'm so unsurprised (laughs) by that. I'm so not surprised. So what about the event itself? How do I set up for this thing? Okay, well, first thing, do it outside. The air and sunshine will mitigate a little bit the transmission of covid And your exhalations, no matter what they contain, will be more diluted. It's more difficult to transmit this virus out of doors. And make sure there's some sort of like big vessel of hand sanitizer. And uh, make sure that everybody knows where it is and tell them it's uh, socially appropriate to use that periodically. Oh, I love how he says that. (laughs) Yeah, but if you do that, there's a real advantage that I didn't expect. Dr. Shafter says that you can actually have a big cooler of beer for everyone to share. The major mode of transmission is this closeness person to person. And the inanimate environment probably is just a, a byway of transmission. And the highway of transmission is person to person, closeness within enclosed spaces. So you're saying reaching into a cooler of shared beer, that wouldn't worry you so much? It wouldn't worry me at all. And sometime during the party, I'd stroll over and take advantage of that hand sanitizer and sanitize my hands. So just to recap, limit your numbers, screen your guests, do it outside, and do not skip the hand sanity. And we want to do this so we can bridge to whenever a vaccine becomes available. And then I'm going to be first in line rolling up my sleeve. 
Sam, this is great. I'll start putting the guest list together. I've already got a huge bottle of hand sanny. May, just wait one second. What, Sam? So you remember how, like, Dr. Schaffner talked about how everyone needs to evaluate risk on their own terms? Yeah, yeah. What are you saying, man? I don't think this is a good idea. Even this, like, low-key small gathering, at least for me on a personal level... I'm not comfortable with that level of risk. Like, not yet. Oof. <laughs> I know. I gotta tell you, man, I'm a bit bummed out right now. But, I I mean, I get it, you know? Do you think that we could hang out, at least? You know, um, if the risk here is, like, ours alone, ah, uh, sure. Yes. We want to just come to my front yard? Honestly, I did not think you were going to be up for this. So yes, that sounds great. <laughs> Hello. May Ortega. Hello, Sam Brash. How are flesh. you? I'm good, man. Well, yeah. welcome to the party. I got you Wait. a little gift. Here, I'll throw it to you. Okay. Just thought it would add this a festive. This is party? <laughs> CPR reporters Sam Brash and May Ortega, hosts of At a Distance. You can hear the entire episode at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.